W233AH Monticello. Hello, 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 and welcome to the local edition. News and information to keep you connected in the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host for this Friday evening, Patricio Robayo. It's Friday. We made it. Thank you for spending your Friday evening with me. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're staying safe. In the second half of the show, we'll learn more about the DNH Canal Museum with historian Bill Merchant. With the latest podcast episode of Cats Cats, the Cats Guild Podcast. But first, it's Friday on the local edition, and every Friday we check in with the one and only Chris Rowley from the Schwankup Journal. Chris, welcome back to the show. Uh, for the past couple of weeks, we've been featuring interviews and analysis uh, of the elections. I know in Ellenville there will be a change in leadership. Uh, what can you tell us about the change in leadership and what happened on election night? The mayor of Ellenville has been replaced, Jeff Kaplan, after a 21-year 20, period as mayor, last election to newcomer Evan Trent, by pretty handsomely, 60% to 40%, 426 to 284. Not the biggest turnout, perhaps, for a village of 4,000, 4, but it was enough to, to see a complete change there. Now, they were not hostile to each other. Trent ran on the Republican line as an, I think, no party line. I can't remember exactly, but it wouldn't really matter. Ultimately, they're pretty much on the same page when it comes to, to the politics of our time. It was just that Evan Trent was offering change, and, and Mayor Kaplan, Jeff Kaplan, was basically saying, let's keep, let's have continuity. Let's not change the, change the captain midstream and so on. And the voters decided, nope. They wanted to change. There will be a new regime, and that means that really the whole village structure, the, the all the board members except one, have turned over in the last uh, two two cycles. Uh, so the only survivor of the ancien regime, as you were, is Raymond Younger, uh, who is the deputy mayor, uh, who uh, won again, once more, um, being a reverend of a, a fairly powerful uh, African-American church in the village does not hurt him, and uh, he has a strong, solid vote uh, and or is, is always there. Anyway, so the, the new board will be interesting. It will be a new board with new mayor. Uh, now, of course, Elmville retains its number one problem, which is it's broke. But village manager Michael Warren has learned all the ropes by now uh, to, to keep teetering along the high wire uh, and prevent the village actually going insolvent. Meanwhile, the village has upped its game on, on going out for any money it can find, grants all over the place. And, of course, the big one will be what Mark Blauer, the, uh, the amazing grant writer from Pennsylvania, is going to be hunting down for the village, which is some serious help for the sewer plant which is now, what is it? It's 10 years old, at least. I think it's almost 12 years old and it is showing signs of age because all that equipment runs 24-7. So it just runs, wears out. 
and it gets expensive beyond belief. Anyway, those will be the issues. And of course, the Sean Gum Journal will be at all those meetings. We'll be watching as Mr. Trent grapples with this and comes up to speed. Meanwhile, over in the town of Warsing, also changes. And two faces that have been on the board were defeated. That's Cassie Spore, who ran on the Republican line and conservative line, and Paul Tazzolino, who lost the Republican line in some kind of palace coup at the Republican caucus in the summer. But he, he, he gave it a gallant try running on the conservative line and no party line, but came up way short. And the Republican who was nominated at, uh, in his place at the, at the caucus, uh, Jeremy Hull, did not come through at all. Uh, not, not, not that strongly. Two Democrats, uh, John Frost and Joe Steckler III, will be taking seats on the town board, now giving the Democrats a 3-2 majority on their board, because Bill Brown, who's already there, is a Democrat too. Three Dems and two Republicans, that's Supervisor Terry Houck and Mike Moschetta. Now, they all should work together pretty well. Moschetta had a period on the village board of trustees. He knows where all the skeletons are hidden and everything. And we just have to hope that this new board will come together and work on the various issues as they arise. And of course, once again, the Shangon will be attending all meetings and paying close attention to everything that goes on. And that basically was the story there. Countywide, we have another close election district attorney. People may remember the last one, which ended on the, the day with, with Dave Clegg having a free vote, vote advantage over Mike Kavanaugh. This time around, Manny Neji appeared to have about a 200-vote margin on Mr. Kavanaugh. And Mr. Kavanaugh must be getting tired of this. But anyway, we'll see what happens with absentee ballots and recounts and the rest of it, because 200 votes out of, it was more than, it was like 47,000 votes cost. So I'm sure that goes into recount territory. So that will be something to watch. And in the, in the meantime, in the rest of it, it was all pretty much as expected. M many races in Ulster County were not competitive or, or people ran unopposed. And where they did run, incumbents, generally speaking, had a, had an easy time of it. In the town of Rochester, for instance, Mike Baden saw off a challenge as town supervisor. Uh, I think he had 85% of the vote. That's, but we, we will see Ian Morse, Albert Ian Morse, we'll see him again. This is his first toe in the water, and maybe he can revive the Republican Party in the town of Rochester. Anyway, that's basically the story here. The county legislative seats all went pretty much as expected. Our incumbents, uh, Craig Lopez and John Guevara, both won the election pretty handsomely. No changes there. All the other local positions, town justice remains the same. Town clerks remain the same. But the town board has switched, and we will see what that means beginning in January. There we go. Right. <laughs> yeah, we had something similar here as far as the legislature. We had a completely change of the board. It was heavily majority Republican and really now when switched, swapped over to, to Democrat. So it'd be interesting to see that how that change will, will roll out. It's always exciting for, for us reporters because you knew, new people are there and new people to get to know and, and just seeing how the board interacts with each other and see what plays out there. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's selfish of us who report on all these things, but hey, but we look, it's nice to have excitement. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, like I said, this election thing, how, especially this, this year, the local elections, 
Like you mentioned that it weren't a lot of competitive races. We had a few, uh, like the most competitive ones were the legislature. And then uh, one or two towns had had opponents. And those races are always exciting to watch because he said it is a possibility of have new leadership. And we had, let's say, just said, switched over to new leadership. One of the towns here in Fallsburg switched over again to from Republican to Democrat. And, uh, and what we got out of this whole election was a lot of it was, in, especially in our end, was they weren't happy the way things were going. They weren't happy how... It was operating in the legislature. There was a lot of infighting, a lot of public infighting during meetings. And so they, they were responding to that. They were citizens. Many of them were citizens, never ran for public office and were responding to what they saw and weren't happy with it. So they decided to run. And I think across the board, it was really even both sides of the aisle really said there was a need for change. We have a Greg Goldstein reaction, which he's the had a GOP party here in, in Sullivan County, even though the D- Democrats won heavily, he said it was a good thing. It was a good thing because the county needed a new change in leadership. I would just say as a sort of final comment on all that, our politics here in this area of New York State are f- pleasantly free of the nastiness that we see in other parts of the country. We don't seem to have that kind of level of grievance and, and, and anger. For instance, in the mayoral thing in Ellenville, Jeff Kaplan said, "Congrats to, to Evan Trent. He would he's, he's going to ask Evan to come and sit in on meetings and basically get a quick education and all the inside stuff." And, yeah, and Evan, I think they even started it off that they were mentioned that they were friends and they said they yeah. would remain friends after this. Yeah, that's it. It's going to be friendly, and Jeff will be around, and the Shankam Journal will rely on him for uh, information about what happened back when. It's always very important to have the older contacts that we can talk to who know what happened in the 1980s or whenever. I'm sure you all guys have to depend on that too over in Sullivan County. But it's, we don't have the, the, this craziness that we see exhibited in other parts of the country. And for that, I have a, you know, I give thanks every week. <laughs> it's the basics. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or Democrat, you just have to be effective and efficient at it. I think what we saw in Warsing was a vote for new faces and a vote for Democrats because they're bringing, these are newer people. These are the people who came during COVID or just before, and they are bringing a a different sort of set of skills to the situation. It's a a vote for change that way, less less a a vote on the, the national kind of issues, although obviously D and R mean something on a ballot, but we'll have to see. Yeah, and we don't have, fortunately, except on social media, we don't have the crazy, the conspiracy stuff and all that. That's not going on. That's it, really, for, for this week. It's all been about the election. Yeah, that uh, sounds good. Thank you so much, Chris, for that. We'll be right back. Be checking out the latest episode of the Cats Cast podcast, the Cats Kills podcast, learning about the DNH Canal with historian Bill Merchant. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Local Edition, winner of Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local. I was not force-fed this notion of objectivity. I've never believed in it. We can't hope as people to be perfectly objective. So I strive for fairness, and I strive for understanding 
So all of that being said, how do you cover the situation in the Middle East from the Catskills? Journalist Laura Flanders on the season premiere of the Jana Saddle Show, Saturday morning at 11 on Radio Catskill. This music can reach further than we've ever imagined into worlds that have so little to do with our culture, the culture of Ashkenazi Jews. The music transcends. It takes hold. Someone hears it, falls in love with it. That, that's why I'm so happy to share this with you. I'm Aaron Bendich, and I play a selection of Jewish recordings on Borscht Beat on Radio Catskill. Sunday afternoon at 1. Welcome back to the local edition. News and information to keep you connected in the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. In the early 1800s, with the roadways and the railways in their infancy, the 108-mile Delaware and Hudson D&H Canal was built by Irish immigrants and German immigrants, primarily to move out coal and other goods between Honesdale, Pennsylvania and the Hudson River ports like the Roundout. In the latest episode of the Cats Cast, the Cats Cut Podcast, host Brett Barry speaks with historian Bill Merchant at the D&H Canal. I used to not get political, but I'm sorry. The immigrants are nothing but a net positive. This would not have existed without them. I can say definitively from research that I've done. Constructed from 1825 to 1829, the DNH Canal boasted 108 locks over a 108 mile route, moving anthracite coal from northeastern Pennsylvania to the Hudson River. On today's Cats Cast, we checked in with Bill Merchant, Deputy Director for Collections, Historian, and Curator at the DNH Canal Museum, recently transplanted to the historic Depew Canal House in High Falls, New York. Towns like High Falls, with changes in elevation, necessitated locks, water elevators, so to speak, raising and lowering boats along the canal. Towns like High Falls, where they had a, because of the falls, they had a series of, well, we've got our historic five locks walk, but there was really six locks just in this half mile stretch because of the drop that, that also created the falls that gave the town its name. When you had a lot of locks, that's an opportunity. It was a, a stopping point, so it was a good spot to capture. There was up to 5,000 people living on the D&H Canal, and they all had to eat, and so there were groceries all along the route. So the D&H Canal was, uh, was fostered by a, a four brothers by the name of Wirtz, and they were Quakers, you know, they were Philadelphia dry goods merchants. So the War of 1812, we have an energy crisis. Everything east of the Appalachians had been heavily settled. Uh, and heavily denuded of trees. There just weren't enough timber resources for both energy and building. We had coal down in Virginia, but the only way to get it to market was on the Atlantic Ocean. And we, it was just as cheap to buy from the Brits. So we were buying coal from England and, and moving it on the Atlantic Ocean because there was no transportation infrastructure to get that bituminous coal from Virginia to the markets, which are primarily New York City, Philadelphia. At this point, when the story starts, Philadelphia is the largest city in America. By the time the canal opens, New York City overtakes. But these were the population centers. War of 1812, there was no shipping going on in the Atlantic Ocean. The, the Royal Navy, huge, powerful, blockaded. And so we have an energy crisis. So the Wurtz brothers famously got a, a, a contract with the U.S. government 
to give them uniforms for the war effort. The government had more land resources than money, so they give them coal-bearing lands in northeastern Pennsylvania in the Lackawanna and Wyoming valleys. Now it winds up that northeastern Pennsylvania has 75 to 90 percent of all the world's anthracite coal, hard coal, are in northeastern Pennsylvania. So it was a huge resource. And so the brothers, they got the land, they start figuring out how to market the coal. Suffice it to say, at a certain point, they said, we need a canal. The Erie Canal had kind of paved the way. So canals have been around, you know, the Chinese had them, God, millennia ago. Leonardo da Vinci uh, invents the miter gate that makes a lock function in 1500. So canals were not unknown. But here in America, because the native peoples were technologically completely different, they had a different mindset, they had just trails uh, and, and waterways, and that was it. So you come into America, you want to move something, the roads were horrible, they're muddy messes. It was easier to ship on, in the winter with sleds rather than to uh, um, actually use roads. So canals become the answer to a problem in America in a way that they weren't in other places. It said that America had canal fever and the Erie Canal led the way. Most of the engineers that built American canals learned on things like the Erie. There were over a hundred canals built in America, including eight that were built like the DNH, primarily to market anthracite coal. But once you've got a canal coming through complete wilderness, this is great, whole towns would spring up within six months of announcing the route. And the route was 108 miles, had 110 locks originally. It ran along the Lackawaxon River, crossed the Delaware River at the confluence, followed the Delaware River to Port Jervis, where it then joined the Neversink River. Oh, you're by the Bashakill for a minute, and then the Sandburg Creek. And then on Ellenville, the, the Roundout joined it, and it followed the Roundout Creek to Roundout on the, on the Hudson, which itself was only two farms at the time. The, the town of Roundout grew because the canal terminated there. Originally, they just wanted to get their coal to Philadelphia. The problem was when they finally did get it there, there were closer coal fields, they couldn't be competitive. They got the right to improve the navigation of the Lackawaxon River from the Pennsylvania Legislative in 23. And so the idea was that they would just run it down and pull the boats back up on the way back. Just outside of Honesdale for a minute, it's on the Lackawaxon Creek. Um, otherwise, it, it was all a canal, all, and it really hugged this serpentine route that we see here. And they go out under the Delaware River. They had a rope. They put the mule. At this point, it was a single mule. The boats were... Wait, did he say mules? Yes, those canal barges were pulled by mules. Those mules driven by children in some cases, at a rate of about one to three miles per hour. It was 10 days round trip, was, and they, they incentivized. If you took 11 days, you lost a nickel a ton. If you took 12 days, you lost another nickel. I, the numbers may be wrong, but they actually incentivized um, um, because they were private contractors. The DNH company had steam and naphtha launches that they operated, but those things would be too fast. You'd erode the sides. So canals throughout the 19th century all just used mule power and, and generally were at three miles per hour and thereabouts. And children. There were children with the mule drivers, boys and girls, sometimes orphans. They would even pay the, the orphanage or the, the poorhouse. The boats were 70 foot long, nine foot wide, carried 30 tons of coal. The canal itself was 32 foot wide on the top, 16 to 20 on the bottom, had four foot of water. And throughout its history, it's fascinating to see the depth and how much it can carry. These boats were just clearing. Um, and you built in river valleys for two reasons. One was somewhere in there on a river valley, you can go the longest, they called them levels, between locks. All the canals of the era were built with pick, shovel, it was Irishmen. It was a common aphorism in the 19th century, all you need to build a canal is a pick, a shovel, a wheelbarrow, and an Irishman. 
This could not have been built uh, nor operated without immigrants, largely Irish. One source says Irish laborers and German stonemasons. The town of Roundout in 1855 was more than half um, immigrants from uh, Ireland and Germany. This, like so many of things in America to this day, if you're eating uh, vegetables, we get people from overseas who are here for the same reasons we love this country. I used to not get political, but I'm sorry. Certain things are just, you know, immigrants are nothing but a net positive. This would not have existed without them. I can say definitively from research that done. The DNH Canal didn't just move coal. Historian Bill Merchant helped us parse out a timeline of canal operations. So 1827, it's already fully watered and operating from Port Jervis to here. They're training people. They're even moving coal. They actually build a turnpike road to connect to an existing turnpike road to get their coal to Port Jervis, and they, they ship it up. They don't do anything in Pennsylvania until the final, final year. <laughs> and I love this part of the story. They, they raised a million and a half dollars. They get a half million dollar bond issue from the state of New York, and that's the money that builds the last end of the canal in, in, in Pennsylvania. Early on, the state of Pennsylvania, when they gave them their charter, they had, a, I forget how many years it was, but if they didn't meet certain metrics, Pennsylvania could seize it. They were very concerned about this. Needless to say, it didn't happen. October of 1828, it opens on its entire length. It operates until 1898 when the coal company says, okay, finally it wasn't making the money. And I haven't looked at the numbers too carefully, but I don't think they ever lost money on the canal. You know, from the start, the very first load ever transported on the DNH canal was firewood. So it belies that idea that, you know, we, we didn't have enough coal. We still had wood, but just not enough for all the things you would do with wood. But there was also bricks, not a whole lot. Most of those were on the Hudson River. Plaster, bluestone. They would ship raw hides from uh, uh, the Caribbean and South America all the way up. Of course, they'd go to Prattsville, you know, but they also went out the DNH Canal. And there was, right here in High Falls, there were two tanneries uh, um, between here and Accord. Sullivan County, one source claims that the, the Union Army marched on Sullivan County leather. There were so many tanneries down there. They would bring the rawhides in, they'd process them, and the, the finished goods would come out. Um, glassware, Ellenville Glass, a, a Connecticut glassmaking firm, um, decides to locate for transportation purposes, so they make their way to Ellenville, and they start making Ellenville glass. By 1880, they are employing 880 people when the town's population is only 2,400. So that's a huge industry. And of course, natural cement. The canal company, they paid a geologist to come along just on the off chance, and lo and behold, in High Falls, their very first annual report, they tell you it was discovered by a geologist. This becomes a huge industry. By the second half of the 19th century, more than half of all of North America's cement is Rosendale cement, largely shipped on the DNH Canal. So 1898, the coal company, so now they sell the entire thing for $10,000 to Samuel Kirkendall. And he continues running it. He sells some on the southern end, but it, was, it ran from Wurtsboro to, to round out still. Now it's not moving coal, obviously, because it's not connecting to the coal mines, but it's still a viable canal. And Kirkendall is buying up natural cement companies. But then in 1901, he sells from Ellenville, basically to Accord here, to the New York O&W Railroad, Ontario and Western Railroad. And they extend their 1872 rail line on the D&H bed. But then it still continues operating from about a half mile east of here, Coles Basin, out to Rondout, and now it's just for the natural cement industry. So now they're bringing coal in from the Hudson River to fire the kilns, to burn the coal, to build the, you know. And th this endures until 1917. 
And it's my contention, and I've, I'm yet to parse it to, to say it definitively, but America enters the First World War in 1917. And so, boom, there goes your workforce. Bill Merchant is a walking, talking encyclopedia for the DNH Canal. But if you're unable to meet up with him in person and want to know more, no worries. The museum itself is a treasure trove of accessible info on the topic. I asked Bill about how it came to be. Well, you know, we have a great board of directors. I was its president when we got the building. At a certain point, uh, Peter Beanstock became our president. He's much better at fundraising than I am. We, we, we raised and expended about $2 million building this. But uh, so I know more about the DNH Canal than probably anybody you're going to meet, right? Um, but I also, and I love, I'm a curator. I've curated uh, many shows. But to design a whole museum in, in America today, uh, I would always go, you know, first off, showbiz, you got to be entertaining. You cannot be long, so you notice we've got some long stuff, but most of it's Twitter length. You want somebody whose job it is is how to engage audiences. And so they actually did public testing. They sat at our flea market and at the parking lot of the River to Ridge Trail and just found out what people knew about it, uh, which, not surprisingly, wasn't much, even people who was in their backyard. And then they designed these things. And, and what I love, too, is if you look outside and look in the windows, we have an image of the DNH offices in, in Rondout, and so it looks like you're looking into DNH offices. In the historic era, this room was the family's, the Depew family's uh, um, room. Uh, until they finally, they're so successful in the 1820s, you get to house. Um, there's no great time to say it, but there were five enslaved individuals held in bondage in this house by Simeon and, and uh, eventually Jacob, although pretty much Simeon's always the owner. Here in New York State, we allegedly freed the slaves by 1827, but in fact, actually, if you were born July 3rd of 1827, you were in bondage till you were 21. 1848. Uh, we all like to think we were better than the southern states. I'm here to tell you we were not. And we have a sign in the final room about that. The canal was right there after 1850. So that stonework was the side of the canal. And where that tree is was six foot of water. There are 412 extant features on the DNH canal that will be enumerated in the update of the DNH Canal and the National Register of Historic Places, which I'm working on with some paid contractors. Although I'm paid a little too, thank God. It was made a, 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 a National Historic Landmark in 1968. Famously, Secretary of the Interior, Udall, flies over and goes, yep, that's a national, you know. They mentioned the five locks, they mentioned this building, so this is a National Historic Landmark. But we're updating that, it's very cursory, and so I led the field surveys, I've written most of the narrative history, 412 extant features. Orange and Sullivan County own the entire bed. Sullivan County does a great job. About 80% is public trails today. Tourism's our biggest industry. Our local businesses have got to understand we are an economic driver. We are bringing, especially with our visitor center, we're getting people to stay here. And cultural tourists are gold. They spend two and a half times the, the money that your average tourist does. People don't appreciate us enough, but we're working on it. We're working on it, you know. And, and also, this space is available for corporate events, for, hey, weddings, small parties, please just talk to us. You know, we just had the Roundout Valley Business Association. Had, they all said it was the best mixer they've ever had, and they had one a month. It's a really comfortable, wonderful space, you know. If you'd like to see this historic space for yourself, check out canalmuseum.org for hours of operation and additional information. Cat's Cast is a bi-weekly production of Silver Hollow Audio. For more stories, go to wjffradio.org slash podcasts and click on Cat's Cast. I'm Brett Barry.
And just like Brett said, you can check out all the latest episodes of the Cats Cats podcast on our website at wjfradio.org slash podcast. That does it for the local edition. Thank you so much to my first guest, Chris Rowley, letting us know what's happening in Ellenville with the election. And again, thank you so much to Brett Barry. If you ever miss a show, guess what? We have our own podcast. You can find us anywhere you find your favorite podcast. Google, Apple, Stitcher. Search for WJFF, The Local Dish. Subscribe, share, and tell your friends. Find us on social media. We're at WJFF Radio Catskill. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, LinkedIn, YouTube. Check out our new YouTube channel. We're, we are hosting our uh, interviews. Many are out there now are for the election. But as time goes on, we'll have more. If you want to find out how you can look for the YouTube channel, just search on YouTube, WJFF Radio Casco. It'll pop up. You've been listening to The Local Edition. I've been your host, Patricio Robayo. Have a good night, Lucy. This is Radio Casco, your NPR station, WJFF Jeffersonville. W233H Monticello. Coming up for you this Friday evening is the daily, and to start off your weekend right is the mixtape. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. Radio Catskill supporters include Sullivan Catskills Visitors Association, SullivanCatskills.com. Catskill Brewery, brewing ales, lagers, and mixed fermentation beers in a LEED Gold certified building, plus a food truck and beer garden at exit 96 off Route 17 in Livingston Manor. CatskillBrewery.com. And listeners like you who donate at WJFFRadio.org. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. You're listening to Radio Catskill.